Well, good morning, uh, good morning, Renewal, and I am really excited to be here with these well, with you guys. And Pastor Derek is right; uh, I am tired, but that's good. I checked with my wife; she said it was good for me to be here. Uh, we just had our fifth child, our first daughter. We have four boys, uh, and this happened ten days ago. So, just in case, uh, this is not a uh, example that I'm setting for all husbands, but I double checked with my wife to make sure that it was okay for me to be here. And she was good with it. So I'm really honored to be here. Uh, me and Pastor uh, Derek, we got lots in common. We both got five kids and uh, just really um, a blessing to be here. I was in the first service and just was sharing with Pastor Luke how eerily familiar this feels like for me. We planted churches in Toronto, planted a church in downtown Toronto called Trinity Life Church. Uh, planted it five years ago, transitioned that to another pastor. The church is beautiful, very much like this one, multi-ethnic, multicultural. Uh, in an urban environment, and so uh, just being here makes me miss that church so much. And so thank you for the warm welcome and being able to be a part of this. Just a little bit of background on who I am and uh, just, you know, how I got here. My wife and I, we moved here about a year ago. We landed in Aurora, so for all you city snobs, yes, we are in the burbs, that's okay. Uh, and so we uh, landed here. I work at Wheaton uh, College. I direct what's called the Sen Institute. And what we do is we research and we study the church in North America. And we ask the question, how do we start better churches to reach different kinds of people? So that's kind of what I do for my day job. Um, I also started a PhD uh, a couple months ago. And so, you know, I decided to have a baby in the midst of it. Just thought, you know, life isn't happening fast enough. So really excited about what all that's going on in our first year here in Chicagoland. And so uh, being here just kind of is tops that off uh, for me. I love the city um, so much for the city. I just can't afford the city. Like, you, you, you know how it is. I just can't, I can't pay rent. I got five miles to feed now. So um, a little bit of background. Uh, ethnically, I'm Hmong. I don't know if you're familiar with the Hmong people at all. Have you ever met a Hmong person? We're not Mongolian. We're a different uh, group of people. The best way for me to explain how I grew up, my background, where I come from is, have you seen the movie Gran Torino with Clint Eastwood, anybody? So that's kind of how I grew up. It was a uh, movie about the people, um, actually half of those people I knew, they, uh, half of those kids in that movie were kids that I mentored in my youth group, uh, and so it's really, um, if you want to know more about kind of how I grew up, that was uh, really a pretty accurate, you know, depiction of what it looked like to be an Asian American growing up in inner city Detroit, so there were about 25 of us or something like that, so, um, and we grew up with very much the... Uh, refugee immigrant experience. And so my parents were from Laos. Uh, there was a war fought in Vietnam that most of you know about, but there was a simultaneous war that was being fought in Laos, which subsequently became uh, labeled the secret war in Laos because only the war in Vietnam was televised. And so my parents were very much a part of that. We came to this country as refugee immigrants, uh, landed uh, about 200, uh, two hours south of Chicago here. And um, that was very much our experience. I grew up in the projects, and then we moved to Detroit, and I like to tell people, I grew up in the toe of the ghetto. Uh, we uh, lived in the 48205, that zip code in 2007 was the most dangerous school zip code in all of the uh, United States, and so that was just kind of our upbringing. I always felt like I was a minority among minorities. I went to a 95% black high school, and so being an Asian, I was quite chubby when I was a teenager. Let's just say I got called a couple of names uh, growing up in, in that, and so, um, so my dad, when he came to the United States here, um, and he, he worked kind of odd, odd jobs, those kinds of things. Eventually, when we moved to Detroit, I was nine at the time, this is 1989, 1990, my dad got his first job, career, in a sense, as a welder, and they paid him $7 an hour. 
And so, you know, that's still not a lot of money back in 1989, uh, feeding five kids that had four other siblings. And so he just raised us that way. By the time my dad retired, he got, in 1997, 96, 97, he retired. And he was getting paid $13 an hour. By the time I entered uh, into um, my third year in college, I was working part-time as tech support. I was getting paid $13 an hour. And so that was just kind of the way that we grew up, and that was kind of just how we made things happen. And I, for a while, felt like I got the short end of the stick, but we're going to learn a little bit through this narrative, uh, this passage of Scripture today, that sometimes in the places that you find yourself disadvantaged, those are the places in which God gives you a calling. And so we're going to look at that, um, some of it. So today, the, the pa- passage that we're looking at is a continuation of the Ephesians series that you're in. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 9. And Pastor Derek and Pastor Luke uh, took us, opened up um, the, the chapter the last couple of weeks ago. And we're going to look at the portion that talks about slaves and masters, or masters and slaves. And I entitled this message this morning, How does reconciliation look like inside a broken class structure? How does reconciliation among different classes of people, how does that look like inserted into a broken system? And so um, this, I mentioned about work and this, uh, I've got five kids. My oldest son, he's 17 now, uh, believe it or not. Uh, I've got a 17-year-old and a uh, 10-day-old. So he got his first job this past week. As of this week, he will be an associate at Timberlands at Chicago Premium Outlets. Have you ever been there before? Uh, and I'm thinking he's going to get a paycheck and he's going to start saving for college because he's starting his senior year. No kidding. On Thursday, he came to me. He said, hey, Dad, I found a Porsche online and I think we can do this. <laughs> so nobody will ever accuse me of not raising a dreamer with ambition. Uh, we're joking aside, I'm, I'm really excited that my wife and I, uh, we're, our son, he is entering into what us boring adults call the real world. But he will become, for the first time in his life, a contributor to both the earthly but also kingdom economy. That he is now entering into that space. All his life, his brother's life, um, and, and now his little sister's life, my wife and I have tried to instill into our kids this idea. We tried to prepare them that work is not just about employment. That your grind that you Instagram about and that, you know, you hashtag grind, whatever it is that you do, that it is not just about employment. It is an assignment from God crafted for you regardless of pay, position, status, or class. Jesus makes this principle very clear in Matthew chapter 25. He says to, to um, some servants that were uh, apportioned some gifts, and two of them did very well with those gifts. They invested them. And so the master of those servants say to the servants, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. When you work, your level of influence is directly correlated to a relationship to the one you're working for. And it's correlated to the assignment. It is not correlated to your title, to your position, and to your pay. And if your master is King Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, and it's not Mr. Smith down the hallway, but Jesus is your master, then work is not about employment. Work is about influence, and it's about calling. It's about this little word that we kind of throw around called vocation. Vocation is voice, vocos, vox. It's a call. 
that's a call in our lives. And so to me, the way that I think about vocation is uh, in the Christian lens, the way that we think about vocation, not employment, but vocation, our call. Vocation is about discovering your identity and your destiny in Christ in order to see reconciliation happen around you, all right? You got a job, and your job may be to push buttons or whatever it is, but your call in Christ and your destiny in Christ is to see reconciliation happen around you. This is your vocation. Uh, And so your vocation is not measured by pay, position, power, these kinds of metrics. The value of your vocation is found in obedience and relationship to the one who has called you. This is where you find your metrics and measurements for success. This is Ephesians chapter 2, 3, and 4 that we're going to walk through here. Uh, And so when we get to uh, chapter 6, which we're getting ready to stand up and read together, uh, as we jump into this uh, passage, it's been preached on for many, many years and many centuries, and the temptation is to take this text to think and reduce it down to a passage about employment, how to become a better employee, or how to work better to get a promotion at work. But the greater context of this passage is much bigger than employment. This passage here, all of Ephesians, all of the New Testament, is about the gospel of reconciliation. Reconciliation. So before we read this text together, I know you guys have been, when did you guys start this series in Ephesians? A couple, couple months ago? All right, so I know you've been walking through this for a good bit. What I want to do is I want to attempt to give to you my synopsis, my summary of the book of Ephesians, all right? Uh, and so I want to set a little bit of the context in the background before we jump into the passage that we're getting ready to read. So I'm just going to read it out to you. This is what I've written down. Well, as far as I understand um, the, uh, the uh, book of Ephesians and why Paul wrote it, uh, God has promised a kingdom where Jesus is the perfect ruler. But the evidence overwhelmingly shows that our social structures and our institutions are broken. Agree? Yeah, yeah. So God chose in Christ, predestined, in love, adopted as children, what is called the church. This is Ephesians chapter 1. To become administrators of this kingdom. The means of reconciliation, how do we do reconciliation, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us to do good works through our vocation, which God has planned and called and ordained before the beginning of the time, Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he dismantles all of the man-made obstructions, obstacles, divisions. He dismantles all of these things, and that becomes our power and our permission to now embark on a kingdom reconciliation. Uh, and so his sacrifice on the cross becomes the means through which we begin to think about how do we act as agents of reconcilers, uh, as reconcilers. And so from this premise of unity and reconciliation, the church is given gifts, the same gifts that Jesus possessed himself, this is Ephesians chapter 4, so that they can administer the kingdom throughout the different social structures and institutions that are around us, that are broken. Not by force, but by influence. Structural injustice, dehumanizing people, are not merely social phenomena. They are spiritual. These are spiritual realities that we're dealing with. So the core structures of society that kingdom is impacting, and Paul outlines them in Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll jump into Ephesians chapter 6, is number one, Pastor Derek preached about this, is gender equality and responsibility, in particular in the context of marriage. 
That's one of the first primary institutions that the gospel, the kingdom of God, is now impacting. It's gender equality, responsibility, in particular in the context of marriage. Secondly, the second uh, core structure of society is generational cooperation. Father, son, those kinds of relationships, in particular in the context of parenting. The kingdom is, is breaking in and it is bringing those generational gaps and divides closer together. And then thirdly, what we're going to look at today is class reconciliation. Class reconciliation, in particular, through vocation. Vocation, what does that look like? And so uh, the church, us, renewal, the church at large, we are uniquely equipped by the Spirit of God with the gospel of reconciliation to be agents of reconciliation in the broken world around us. Not by force, but by influence. How does gospel reconciliation happen, though, when you live inside a broken structure, when you feel like you are disadvantaged, when you feel like you are the minority, uh, whether it's your race, your gender, your socioeconomic situation, where you came from, how can you even begin to think about reconciliation when your lot, your situation, is that you are second, third class? How do you do that? And I think that's where the text is taking us today. We're gonna look at it, we're gonna take three questions that come from the text, and we're going to expound that so that we have a better understanding of what reconciliation looks like in that. So, but can I ask you guys to stand up with me as we look at Ephesians chapter 6 and we read it out loud. This is uh, God inspiring Paul through the Holy Spirit to write these words to us. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive it back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. The spirit has given us gifts to, and to listen, to respond. Thank you for your word that it sets our feet on the right path. And thank you for those of us who had the courage to be here this morning, regardless of our situation. Would you speak to us in it? Maybe through my words, and maybe through this passage, it may just be directly from the Spirit. We welcome all of that. We ask that you would do it. And bless this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First question that I want to ask from the text uh, is, how do servants, how do servants utilize their identity and their calling to persevere through inequality? So for those who feel like servants, to those who feel like slaves to the system, so those who feel disadvantaged, how do you use your identity and your call to persevere through inequality? We get this question from chapter, from verse 5. Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ Jesus. And the reason why we're talking about class reconciliation this morning here is because Paul is addressing slaves and masters. He's addressing a system, slaves and masters. The ESV is a little bit softer in the translation that it uses on the word doulas. Uh, that word is slave. It, they chose to use the word bondservant. 
You can't explain away this concept. In the context of this particular church, in this particular context here, there are people that own other people. All right. So this is the situation in which Paul is speaking into. Now, let me be very clear that the Bible does not uh, promote or condone slavery. I, I don't have time to get into that argument or that debate, but it doesn't condone or promote slavery at all. But what the Bible doesn't do is it also doesn't shy away from talking about slavery and how do we function, although the systems are broken. As a matter of fact, in this particular passage, it puts on display how the ethics and morality of the kingdom, how they still work despite a broken system. That God's ethics and moralities, they still work even though the system is broken, and that's what Paul's trying to do. Recently, Kanye West uh, made some statements um, about how, you know, 400 years of slavery, man, that's got to be a choice. Uh, it's got to be a state of mind. And I don't know, if, you know, maybe he was off his meds, that's what he says. Uh, maybe he was speaking from the heart. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But while his statement was completely off basis, you hear me saying that, right? I'm not promoting what Kanye West was saying, okay? Uh, he raises an important point. And the point is this. That when you experience inequality, if you're the person on the raw end of the deal, how do you maintain a proper understanding of, of yourselves? How do you maintain your dignity? How do you understand a right way of thinking about yourselves in a way so that you return that oppression not with evil but with good? How do you do that? And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. When you are at a social disadvantage, do you lose who you are? Do you lose who you are? And the gospel keeps us all, it keeps you, it keeps us as Christians, if you're a believer in Christ, it keeps you from thinking too lowly about yourselves in a low situation that you would become passive in the midst of oppression. But it also keeps you from thinking too highly of yourself so that in the midst of oppression that you respond with evil and hate. This is the power of gospel at work in the lives of someone who claims Jesus. And so uh, when you are losing socially, does your identity in Christ change? When you're at a disadvantage, do you become a different person? Paul's addressing that in this particular passage. And so he explicitly instructs slaves to be obedient to their masters. And I admit to you that there's a lot of tension inside of me uh, at his instruction here. But let me see if I can try to resolve some of that tension by saying that the why and the how of obedience isn't what it seems. It's not what we would think about when we say, you know, slaves, you know, obey your masters. That's not the tone that Paul is saying. The why and the how is different. Paul tells the slaves to obey with the quality of obedience that they would give to Christ. To think about it in a different way, they, that they would obey with the quality of obedience that Christ himself has. It is a quality of obedience that's different from a human originated uh, obedience. So what does that look like? Well, this obedience is not legalistic or ritualistic. Do you guys understand when I say legalistic? Um, it's not a way to gain favor. It's not a way to gain acceptance. Uh, it's not to look good. It's not to make your masters proud of you. Paul isn't promoting an Uncle Tom-like obedience among this group. We do not have an Uncle Tom relationship with God, by the way. We don't have an Uncle Tom relationship with anybody. And so you never have to work as if you have to gain favor. 
You don't have to work as if it's the pathway to prestige, to freedom, to your salvation. Your earthly obedience to an earthly man doesn't become your validation, your satisfaction, your promotion, your name, your title, your honor. Because all of these things are found in Christ, not to an earthly man. Someone whose identity who is completely rooted in the God of justice who exchanged his life for an unjust, unjust sinner, someone who is rooted in that fact would never be a sellout to justice. As a matter of fact, they bleed for justice in the way that Christ bled for justice. Um, this is the key difference between Martin's philosophy of engagement and early Malcolm's philosophy of engagement. You understand what I'm saying? There's a, there's a difference there. And, and, and so the way that Jesus, uh, uh, the way that Paul is unpacking the gospel for the uh, slaves is that there is a way in which you engage with goodwill and with love. Uh, when you are the minority or when you are someone in a disadvantaged position, whether it's your gender, your race, your social economic situation, the right action, Paul is saying, that is, uh, that is consistent with somebody whose identity is in Christ, the right action here, Paul is saying, is fear and trembling in a sincere heart. It's, it's, it's kind of confusing until you <clears throat> think about the alternatives. Because it's, the reaction and reaction isn't pride, bitterness, and a vengeful spirit. So uh, when Paul says uh, fear and trembling and sincere heart, he's not saying be a pushover. He's not saying being, be passive about uh, the situation around you. But what he is saying is that you should have a positive biblical disposition about yourself. You should think about yourself in a way that the Bible talks about you so that your actions and your reactions can never be hateful and vengeful. That is not who you are. The gospel establishes your security in Christ in a way that a current lowly situation, the situation that you're in that's low, you're oppressed, inequality, those kinds of things, that can never reflect the true reality that you have a royal position in Christ. And the bass kicks in. <laughs> it's with that level of confidence, it's with that kind of confidence that uh, your identity can display good works, even in the face of the oppressor. Okay? Because your identity is not rooted in the approval of the oppressor. It's rooted in what the approval you receive from God the Father in Christ. So that your response doesn't have to be hateful or vengeful. It can be goodwill, as Paul is saying here. And so it's in accordance with your identity in Christ that you have a good will in the midst of injustice. Hateful reaction is always beneath your royal position. It's a key difference between, um, again, what I was saying, Martin's, Martin, Dr. King, that was a lot of what uh, launched his uh, peaceful protest uh, in the midst of the civil rights movement. Uh, when you are a minority in a position of weakness, and I was talking about how I was a refugee immigrant status, um, you know, I grew up in an um, uh, inner city high school, uh, got called a bunch of names, uh, probably the, I shouldn't tell this joke, but um, we used to do this thing back in the uh, uh, 90s, we called it capping, anybody know what capping means? Okay, you see, a couple of you know it. So, you just kind of go back and forth and you kind of make fun of each other. 
had a friend named Sterling, and we, we were good terms, so it, it hurt me, but it didn't really hurt me. He said, you know how you got your name, Yang, Chang, Hang, you know, if somebody took some silverware and they threw it against the wall, and whatever noise it made, that was your name. Uh, and uh, so that was the kind of environment that I grew up in. Uh, and uh, we were poor, uh, and uh, just always thought that our lowly situation, why do I have to be a second class even among minorities? That was just kind of the idea, that was kind of the perspective. When you're a minority in a position of weakness, uh, it's hard to see that there's purpose in it. It's, it's hard to see that. It's very difficult to see that there is redemption in that. What you have to learn to do when you're in Christ is to turn that lowly position right side up and to see that lowly position as an opportunity. An opportunity in the midst of a broken structure that you have been given an opportunity. Uh, that is the 2,000 year testimony of Christian activism. It isn't fair, but you're still called to be an agent of change in the midst of it. Humble revolution, not prideful takeover. In God's sovereignty, some of us, he has brought us low to places that we would never wish for ourselves, like Christ, but he brought us low to see those places transformed by you in Christ. But if you confuse your low situation for your identity, what you don't have, what you wish you had, the opportunities that you wish were given to you that were taken from you, if you confuse that with your identity, your low position, you will begin to act low yourselves. And you can't reciprocate with goodwill and you reciprocate with hate and a vengeful spirit. In Christ, you're never merely oppressed. I used to hate the fact that we were, uh, uh, you know, a, a poor, broke, refugee, immigrant family until one day God gave me a different word for our situation. Again, what you have in Christ completely transformed what, you, what you're experiencing without Christ. Instead of low position, it became an assignment. God makes what is a low position without Christ into a calling in Christ. He changes the picture upside down. You are the agent of change specifically positioned in Christ to bring culture to where you're at. That's a place of humility, not a place of pride. I don't know how it is uh, with renewal. Uh, in Toronto, where I was planting in downtown uh, Toronto, in uh, inner city Detroit, where I grew up, the weight of doing good in the midst of inequality is crushing. It is crushing. You talk about fatigue, it is crushing. To try to keep to do good over and over and over and good in the midst of inequality. Um, <clears throat> I would imagine that you experience some of that even in, uh, you know, in the midst of wherever you're at, regardless of your situation. But the crushing weight of it that's destroying any desire to do good still, that, that, that feeling of feeling crushed that you just want to respond with hate and vengeful spirit, that is because we still derive prestige, promotion, and position from an earthly master. It's because your source of identity is still the approval of another class over you. But if you realize that Christ himself carries the injustice to the cross, Christ himself carries the good works and the performance necessary to reverse injustice to the cross, then you realize that Christ carried you to the cross and it changes the game. 
It changes the tone in which you begin to view your low position. Let me raise a second question here. Paul turns his attention to a different group of people. And let's ask the question, well then, how do masters, how do the masters utilize their identity and their calling to privilege other people? And so uh, if you're in the master class or if you're in the privileged class, how do you use those things to begin to help other people? Paul says this in verses 9. He says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. My second point is a little bit easier to build because it's really the same point as the first point. Uh, just to a different audience and to a different perspective. Uh, like how slaves use their low position uh, to do good works in the kingdom of God, masters are, are to use their high position to do good works in the kingdom of God. Uh, because in the kingdom of God, position is relative. It's not a real thing. Both are used by God to achieve kingdom reconcilia- reconciliation. The, the I, 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 assignments are identical regardless of where you fall in the earthly classification of your status and position because in Christ there is no hierarchy and so what Paul's doing is that uh, in this particular passage he is providing a foundational like a theology for reconciliation what does God think about reconciliation and he's providing it to a new church kind of like renewal you guys are a newer church I think Pastor Luke said you're about you're almost on year four right now and so the church in Ephesus is a new church and so they don't have an Old Testament background they didn't grow up you know a Bible believing you know Christian And so he's starting to insert into their uh, mindset, how do you begin to think about reconciliation among a very broken society where even in the church you maintain master-slavery relationships? And how does Paul do that? It's very practical. He basically is saying to them, there is no distinction between your purpose, your attitudes, and in your behavior in the church. If you're a master and you're a slave, you have the same purpose, you should have the same attitudes and the same behaviors. Because in the church, there is no small and there is no large position. There's no such thing as a small way to do things in the church, or they've got the bigger you know, uh, role in the church. There's none of that. You might have great earthly influence, but that great earthly influence doesn't necessarily mean that you will have great kingdom influence. You might have small earthly influence, but that doesn't mean that you will only have small kingdom influence. And this is the concept that Paul's starting to tease out as he's talking to this class. He turns his attention to this particular class of people who have large earthly influence. They're the master class. Um, have you, you guys seen master class where they're teaching all that stuff? Because it's the experts teaching us non-experts about how to do things, right? And so he's teaching, he's talking to this group of people, uh, a lot of influence, a lot of human capital, and he's saying to them, <coughs> excuse me, the same thing that I just said to the slaves, that applies to you too. Um, he says, uh, Masters, do the same. Do the same. You're not exempt from acting in fear and trembling with a sincere heart. Uh, Your earthly promotion is not a result of your performance or because of favoritism, which if you think that God's uh, approval of you is based off of performance and favoritism, that's that's another version of health, wealth, gospel. Your prestige, your promotion, your position, all of these things are God's grace. Having these things doesn't increase your value and your visibility in God's eyes. Just because you have these things, it doesn't mean that you're more important to the extent that you think they are. If you have more visibility and you think more visibility makes you more important, 
then you misunderstand the gospel. You misunderstand what it means to be hidden in Christ and to be displayed with Christ. And so Paul's basic theology of class reconciliation is very concisely stated in verse 9 when he says this, there is no partiality in God. There is no division with God. The word with is a little bit confusing. The actual Greek word that uh, Paul uses here is par, which means from or in the presence of. There is no partiality, no hierarchy, no division in God himself. So if that's the case, why would God want that for his people? And so this is Paul building the theology of reconciliation for this new church. He has never, God has never looked at somebody who has earthly influence and says, you're more valuable. He's never looked at somebody who has less earthly influence that grew up in the projects or whatever it is and says, you have less value. This is not the way that God works in his economy. Uh, although he works within broken systems, I, I really do believe that as God looks at the way that we operate, that it breaks his heart. But he's got no choice but to work uh, within those systems. So Paul turns to the masters, uh, those who have great earthly influence and privilege, some of us, and he says, you have a unique challenge that slaves don't. If you're in a place of position and you can do things freely and you have a couple of things that advance you a little bit further than other people, uh, it could be because who you grew up with or how you grew up or your gender or your race or just where you live and you can do things that other pe people can't do. Paul is saying that you actually have an extra measure of responsibility that those who kind of fall in the slave class that you, you don't have. And Paul, makes, Paul says it this way. He says to the master class, he says, stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. And why does Paul have to say this to the upper class people? Because he, uh, when you're a person of means, when you have things, when you have choices, uh, you can use your means and your choice to manipulate others who don't to get your way. And it's not like you're doing it in a mean-spirited way. It's not like you're, you're, you're purposely trying to be the winner all the time. You know, all I do is win, win, win. Or, you know, or it's, yeah, what does is, what is, uh, you know, our president say? Um, still winning, you know. Uh, it's, it's not that you want that about yourselves. But there is a situation that has put you in a place where if you aren't cognizant of it, your basic decision-making habits continuously keep other people in the places that are lower than you. Yeah. And there's something about the Paul saying, and, and so when he says stop your threatening, it's basically him, the threatening that he's talking about isn't necessarily just, well, if you guys don't do what I'm saying, I'm going to crack the whip. No. You know, this is how Christians do it, by the way. Yeah, I don't think we're going to fund that anymore. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, that's not our vision anymore. When the reality is that they're not getting their bang for the buck or whatever it is, right? We all do this, but this is how it plays out in, in modern day. And so Paul is addressing this system. He's addressing this attitude. He's, he's saying that if you are in the kingdom of God and if you have privilege, the constant activity from sunrise to sunset, your constant activity is this. My privilege exists so that I can lay it down to elevate other people. That is the activity of the privileged person. And so when you exert your privilege over other people, even just slightly, 
and you don't think it's really harming other people, what you're actually doing is you're doing the exact opposite of the reason why God gave you privilege in the first place. So Paul says, stop your threatening by relinquishing some of your privilege. It's the same thing he means when he says, husbands who are gender privileged, give your lives over for your wife so you can raise her up to be splendorous and and all the good things that Pastor Derek talked about a couple weeks ago. It's a lowering of the selves. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about last week. Pastor Luke took us through when he says, don't provoke your children, fathers, We know that you're wiser. We know that you know more, but don't exasperate your children. Lift them up too. The same thing Paul's saying, masters, we know you have it. Lift up those who don't. Notice I didn't say uh, white privilege. uh, Because I, I exist in a world where there's a thing called Asian privilege. Like Asians have certain privileges that, did you know that per capita, Asians have the highest education and uh, income in, in the United States of America. There are certain privileges that are afforded to us. doesn't mean life isn't hard. It doesn't mean that there aren't things stacked up against us. But the greatest privilege that Asians have is that we have the best food. That's just, that's just I mean, pho, uh, pad thai, come on, man, sushi, you know what I'm saying, right? So, so privileged, okay? This isn't a race, this isn't a gender, this is a people thing. The moment you're up on somebody with something in your life, that's an assignment. And that's an opportunity where God says, and that's the leverage in which you use to raise other people up as well. Uh, As an example, kind of just, you know, using the naked eye to to survey the American church. That's my job. That's what I do uh, for a living is I study the American church. Over the last century, we've thought in some ways, and this is how Americans think. We're a bit kind of American, so... But we've kind of thought that the American church has been, you know, in some ways, like, you know, probably the most best church. <laughs> we send out missionaries and we, you know, do a lot of good stuff and we help, you know, poor people all over different countries. And so we kind of just think that that's our job, our responsibility. We're, you know, just like America at large thinks it polices the world, the American church kind of thinks it polices the global church. Uh, and so, except for the fact that I don't think that really matches the reality of what's actually going on. Uh, we know politically that we don't have any influence, uh, at least not at this time and point. Uh, in terms of m- uh, mission activity and church growth, the American church doesn't have it when you compare it to Africa, uh, South America, uh, you know, parts of Asia. And so these places are growing much faster than you see the church in America. We're now at a point in history where the American church must, it should learn from what we typically have called the third world church the lesser privileged church. We're finally in a position, I think we are, where we're saying, okay, I don't think we figured it out. We're we're not seeing people come to know Christ as fast as other countries. Per capita, we don't send the most missionaries compared to uh, countries like Korea. We're we're not always winning as the American church. And so that, as an example, I think is a, a good way for us to understand the heart of what Paul is saying to the masters, to the masters class, He's saying that there will come a time when your earthly power and your privilege will fade, but while you still have it, use it for the sake of the kingdom and do it in a way as if you never really wanted it because there will come a time when it's really not yours anymore because all the power, all the privilege that is stewarded by God to us, it can be reappropriated and uh, reapportioned 
and reassigned uh, uh, in any way God sees fit. So Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, but I think he's also writing to the modern day church. He's writing to the church in Chicago. He's writing to a church like Renewal. He's admonishing us gently with some things. And I think this is kind of the premise for how Paul is bringing chapter 5 and chapter 6 together. He is, because he starts out in chapter 5 with this. Uh, the way to end classism, gender classism, generational classism, vocational classism, the way to end those things is to submit to one another. This is the key that Paul is giving to the church in Ephesus. Be the place in your city where it doesn't matter which class you come from. When you get here, you're all the same. Be that place. Be the place in the city that if there is nowhere else that the rich are serving the poor, that at renewal, that's happening. Be the place in the city. If there's nowhere else that the poor is leading the rich, let that be said of churches like Renewal here. There is no boundary. There is no class distinction. If there's no place where people can't come together and, and take off racial, gender, social, economic uh, standards that they have to live up to, let it be said that at churches like Renewal, but in this place, we found a place where everybody, they submit to each other. They submit to each other. Take us to our last question. <clears throat> our last question is this from the text. What's the hope for masters ever becoming like slaves? I don't think that's ever going to happen. What's the hope that slaves will ever be elevated to, the, to equality with, with masters? What's the hope that Paul is talking about here? The key is actually in chapter 5 earlier. Paul provides the why of his ethical teaching for church unity and how the kingdom impacts social structures. And so he says this in 5 uh, verses 1 and 2. He says, uh, therefore, be imitators of God. That's our calling, is to imitate God. As beloved children, that's our identity. You're not an employee. You're not a, um, <clears throat> just a religious uh, devotee, but you are a beloved child of God. And walk in love as Christ loved us, here's the key, and gave himself up for us. Gave him, Christ gave himself up for us. All of the ethical and moral teachings on reconciling these core structures in society are patterned after this. Imitate Christ and give yourself up for other people. This is how you see reconciliation uh, happen. It's not pattern after employee boss benefits. It's not pattern after that. It's pattern on the powerful giving up themselves for the powerless. And this isn't, this isn't socialism. I did live in Canada for a long time. <clears throat> this isn't communism. This is kingdom. This is the husband giving himself for the wife. This is the father or the parent who is not exasperating but lifting up the next generation. This is the master who is relinquishing privileges to lift up the slave. <clears throat> There's no greater display of this uh, picture of this pattern. Uh, the best display of this is uh, when God the Father uh, sees humanity powerless in our sin, uh, enslaved to our sin, enslaved to our own addictions, enslaved to our own mindsets. And God sees that and he gives himself up by sending his son to die on a cross in our place 
And Jesus' death is like the master lowering himself to become like a slave. It's just Philippians chapter 2. So he can become one of them to lift them up. <clears throat> Jesus' death on the cross is kind of like in Ephesians chapter 5 that Pastor Derek talked about. It's like the husband saying, you know, I've got my hobbies. I love my basketball. I love my whatever it is. But I will give that up if it means my wife can live out her call. Jesus dying on the cross is the same in which a father sees his wayward son squandering everything that he's ever given to him. And when the wayward son comes back home, instead of lecturing him like my good Asian father would do, <laughs> he embraces him with a ring, a kiss, sandals, and a party. It is the powerful giving up privilege to raise up the powerless. A master who becomes a slave to elevate the slave to become his equal. This is what it means to be a bond servant of Christ. It's not because we're slaves to Christ, but it's because in a sense we're slaves like Christ. We're like him. We're in him. And so uh, Christ knew. He knew that living this way, that injustice would happen to him. That people will look at him and he's, he's too soft. Jesus is too passive. You know, you know that's why Judas uh, uh, betrayed Jesus, right? Because he thought Jesus was too soft. He was too much like Martin, not enough like Malcolm. And so they thought that maybe if they lit a fire under Jesus that he would lead the revolt. And so, uh, and so people thought these things about Jesus. How is it that we can live a life where we're not enslaved to people's opinions about us? That we can still do the right thing even when it's not the popular thing. How does this happen? It happens because if you look at the relationship between God the Father and His Son Jesus, that there's a quiet confidence that Jesus has knowing that regardless of all the actions that He does, that He will never lose the approval of His Father. Think about this, when Jesus was 30, before He did any miracles, before He did any ministries, he got baptized, and the first thing that God the Father said over him before he did any miracles was this. This is my son, whom I love, and I'm well pleased. This is the favor that Jesus carried with him, so when he did the hard things, he could still do good in the face of evil, in the face of injustice. This, his, his disposition, his identity was well-rooted in the fact that he had the Father's approval. I've never seen anyone who has an employee boss mentality with God, serve God with a sincere heart. If you think that God uh, needs you to work hard for your approval because you're enslaved to him and he's like your master and you have to have this employee relationship with him, it is darn near impossible to ever serve him with a sincere heart. So I, I wanna say for, for those of us who feel this way, because that's a very familiar feeling to me, that the approval that Jesus has in himself, that he's given it to you as well. That he is the evidence that God is not a boss waiting to, uh, to, uh, to zap you whenever you do things wrong. That he is a loving father that is in a relationship with you, that is eager to teach you about his business. He's eager to hand over the reins, the administration of the kingdom over to sons and daughters 
like his son Jesus. That's your identity. That's your call. That's your task. Um, I want to take us in a different direction. Um, it's going to feel like a hard left turn. Uh, but I want to uh, pray for this group uh, this morning <clears throat> because there are things in our lives that you might often feel enslaved to. Um, and I don't know what those things are. It could be what Paul says here, people-pleasing or eye service. Do I need this constant approval over my life? Am I enslaved to that idea that if I don't do things the right way that I might get hurt or I might get, uh, you know, I'm, I'll lose the relationship? Um, that if that's you, I want to pray for you this morning. Uh, and then I also want to pray for a special group of people. And um, maybe it's just me or maybe it's just some thoughts. But for those of us who are enslaved to loneliness, that you just can't break the cycle of loneliness. I just, I can't break this fact that I feel isolated. Maybe it's not rejection. Maybe it's not. But you just always come back to the fact, but, but I don't have this person. I don't have this relationship. And it might not be just a romantic relationship. It could be I'm lonely because I really have never had the father. I'm lonely, and so I've never had, you know, a great friend. I've never had, I don't have a child. And we're at a point where I don't know if I can have a child. And you suffer from the slavery to loneliness inside of you. I want to pray for you. And the band is here, and I don't know how you do this, and this is not very smooth, but... Uh, maybe before Pastor Luke comes and leads us in the Lord's Supper. If the band, uh, I hope you're all just flexible. If you can just sing that song we sang earlier, How He Loves, and into that other song, uh, I would love that for us. Um, but I want to pray for us in particular so that you know that you can walk in the favor and the approval that Jesus walked in daily, that he had never struggled with insecurity or self-sufficiency because he knew he always had it. It will free you if that's the freedom that you walk in. I invite you to stand up. I'm going to pray for you.